Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. week, then you would have heard that. Uh, if you weren't, let me bring you up to speed a little bit. It's an orchestra tuning up, and what you would have heard at the beginning is a note that was offered that was the note to tune to, and then a discordant note was offered up, which we often do in musicianship, um, and then back to the original to give you a contrast so that you can better tune to the correct note. So we began last week uh, a three-part series, and we began with the idea of <coughs> examining <coughs> leadership, basically. Uh, it was until the prince or the pauper, and the contrast was between uh, 15th century writer um, named Niccoli Machiavelli, who wrote a book called The Prince, and it is the way to basically win uh, control and power, and it's become an influential thing in leadership over the years. Um, it's in direct contrast, though, it's the discordant note to what the pauper would offer, which is Jesus Christ in the Sermon of the Mount, who begins with the statement that um, it is the poor in spirit, <clears throat> the humble who will actually inherit the earth and do things. So we were contrasting that uh, last week a bit. And um, in that process, we talk about those who are increasingly within the church having a leadership culture, which I embrace leadership strongly. But the concept has been coming to the point of saying we get the best and the brightest to achieve the greatest. That's in contrast to Jesus Christ, who gathered who were not the best and the brightest to achieve great things in the process. We've contrasted Saul um, because the people clamor for a king. They want that leadership element and not following God directly through Samuel. And Saul starts off good, but eventually he gets caught up with taking polls. It's the influence of people, eventually consulting witches when that fails. We contrasted that with David, who's a man after God's own heart, who constantly inquires of God. And so here as we have finished the 50th year of ministry in this church, we have chosen, beginning this past Wednesday, to designate the next 40 days for a time of prayer, to not follow the ways of the prince, but to go after the ways of the pauper, to not follow the ways of Saul, but to embrace the methodology of David. David was a musician uh, before he was a leader. He was a worshiper um, before he was anything else. And he understood the importance of tuning himself before God and tuning his heart to align with the things of God. And so we've chosen this season as a church to step back and tune our hearts to God. So there's a devotional that's been provided that we've shaped, um, some music, some other things. We have three gathering points. The, last, the first one just occurred, and we had a significant number of people that were here for that. Um, and it was a very sweet time in the presence of God. And so, well, there is that. So evidently, some technology does work within the brownout. Um, 
And so we're, we're taking a season of time. There'll be two more uh, Wednesday evenings that will be a time of just gathering together in prayer as a congregation. So if you can mark those down as well, and if you can make that. And then from this, we're going to be uh, seeking the strategy and direction and things that God would have us do moving into this next season. Today is the second part of this. I want to talk to you a little bit about this generation. Um, to do that, I, I'm going to uh, not play a video for you uh, this morning. Um, I, I'm going to play it, but you're only going to hear it. Uh, and we're going to receive offering. And if you're here for the first time exploring the things of God, we don't expect you to participate in the offering. You either may not know us well enough to trust us with that, or you're exploring the things of God, and it makes no sense to align yourself financially with someone that you haven't committed yourself to. Um, but for those of us that have committed ourselves to Christ, know the history of this church. It's our time to offer those tithes and offerings before him and to partner with that work. And so as this is played, I think you can still hopefully grasp some of the, the aspect of it. I'll give you a little bit of it to, to help you out. It's a sound engineer who is attempting to desperately, desperately trying to, to um, correct a musical artist on the other side of the glass. And so it cuts back and forth between what you're hearing with his magic on the board and what is actually her voice in reality. And so that's the contrast that you're going to grasp here, and then we'll continue on in our conversation. Father, I ask your blessing upon this offering. I ask, Lord, that these things would be released for your purposes. We give you thanks today. There's not a thing we had that didn't come from you. We ask, Lord, that this morning you'd speak to us out of your word, and that our hearts would be not just touched, but transformed by the process, as well as our thinking. We commit these things into your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just the contrast. guy is desperately trying to have somebody who is just a horrible singer um, sound good. And it is amazing today uh, how with auto-tune and all the other technology, we can make some of the, the worst things sound good, or at least mask and cover those up. In fact, increasingly, especially in this country, our technology covers up a lot of things uh, for us. Uh, and we depend upon it so much. Um, and and I'm, I'm right there with it again, the same thing as I am on, on the leadership issue. I'm not criticizing, I mean, leaders take enough hits as it is, but I am criticizing when a princely mindset enters into the church and we depend upon that leadership and those skill sets to shape our reality rather than depending upon the things of God. In the same thing, when we depend on certain aspects of our culture, um, even our technology, I, I've heard a couple of comedians uh, riff recently on the idea of, of what would happen if we lose our phone. One person likened it to uh, having a stroke. 
I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how to get there. I don't know what time I'm supposed to be there and all the different things that we use our phones for and our technology for. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about this generation. Now, as I'm talking about this generation, I want you to understand that I'm going to speak about this in theological terms in the sense of what the scripture is saying in regards to it. So when I'm saying this generation, I'm not talking about millennials. I'm not talking about Xers. Uh, I'm not talking about that. We're speaking about the prevalent mindset or value system that is embraced by our society and by the culture that we are in. I met with uh, a number of our 20-somethings recently in a gathering, and I mentioned to them that I was going to be referencing some scriptures and talking about this generation, that when I do that, that I'm not talking about uh, only them at all. Uh, to me, you can be 20 years old, you can be 70 years old. If you buy into a certain mindset, then you are part of this generation that we're discussing and talking about today. I read of them, they they'd recently had just sung a, a worship song, and I referenced this worship song that we just touched on briefly, 10,000 Reasons, and I, I love this song, and I think it's a, a cross-generational journey almost a bit in, in worship, because it talks about the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your song again, whatever may pass, whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. To me, that's kind of like someone just starting off fresh in the faith, and, and there's a new day dawning, and they're just woken up, and they're a younger person, perhaps. And then the second verse says, you're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great and your heart is kind. For all your goodness, I'll keep on singing 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. This is someone in the middle portion of life with children. They're, they're trying to understand and they're learning more and more about God, his richness in love and his slowness to anger, his character. And then this goes to those of us that are in that latter portion of life. And it says, on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul We'll sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. And the question to those of us that are in the older phase of life is, will we finish well? Will we continue and, and, and finish what we have started and what God has started within us? And so while that speaks of multi-generational viewpoint and, and this conversation embraces it, what we're talking about here today is something that's referred to in Genesis chapter 7. And if you look at the screens, you won't see it there. Um, <laughs> When the Lord says to Noah, this means you have to listen. Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Now, it was a multi-generational family. It was speaking about the entire world at that time. And he says, I have found you, each one of you in your different age groups, you have become righteous or you are righteous in this generation. And so he's speaking of an entire worldview or mindset and saying, you guys, regardless of your ages, you you have been found righteous. You stand in stark contrast to this generation or what the rest of the world is offering in the worldview. One quick note before we abandon the idea of age-specific discussion on this is when I was discussing, I had dinner with one of our 20-somethings and we were sharing some thoughts back and forth and he had a really interesting thought that I think needs to be shared. Um, he says, I've got a political theory. He says, I know it'll never get implemented, but he says, I think that, that when you turn 18, you shouldn't receive a full vote. You should receive half a vote. Because you really don't know what's going on. And this is coming from a 20-something. I thought, that's brilliant. And he says, yeah, and then when you turn like 25 or something like that, then you, you get three quarters or, or so, and, you turn, and then eventually you get this full vote. And I thought, that's brilliant. And then he says, it also goes the other way. When you hit 50, you get three quarters of a vote. <laughs> 
because you don't know what's going anymore, you know, and you're kind of losing touch with reality. And so I, I, I gather from that extension, by the time you hit 75, you're disenfranchised. I don't know. I just thought that was brilliant. Um, so what we're discussing is the idea then of, of a generation and a worldview. Um, Peter drives us home. We talked last week about the difference between Peter and Stephen. Both offer these brilliant commentaries and, 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 and speeches, if you will. In Peter's case, 3,000 are added to the church. In Stephen's case, he's stoned. And we said, which of these did God bless? And the answer is both. But in a worldview uh, uh, that is common today, in the generational view, they'd say, oh, Peter, because 3,000, he's a winner. Stephen, he's a loser. Nobody really came to Christ over him. But in the economy of Christ, they were both faithful. Therefore, they were both successful. And so we have to retune what our thinking of success is. I could look at this last Wednesday and I was, I was caught in my natural sense at the fact, because uh, we, we just had quickly announced that it was going to happen three days notice, I was surprised and over 100 people showed up for that gathering. And I want to sit here and say, uh, on one level, that was successful because there were 100 people plus in that gathering. And that's, that's a wrong thinking. What was important about that gathering is whether there were 10 people or 150 people, is that the presence of God was in that gathering and there was something of alignment and unity that took place in that. And so it's hard for us, all of us, myself included, to look past the natural tendencies that we have towards counting and towards assessing things within the flesh and looking at things um, with the Spirit's eyes. And so in Acts, Peter's even saying to them, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children who are far off. But then he says this, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them this, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And again, he wasn't talking millennials or old people or anything else. But he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Another translation says, get out while you can. Get out of this sick and stupid culture. Another translation says, be saved from this perverse generation. This is not a screed against culture or society. This is all of mankind. You don't have to be American to be screwed up, okay? Paul takes it even deeper. In Romans chapter 1, he gives us a snapshot of this worldview. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. We're seeing things argued today that honestly are some of the most insanely foolish, ridiculous things possible. <laughs> they're not in any way scientific or logical. And they're being offered up as, as if we are suddenly enlightened and have come to understanding of things that nobody in all of history has come to an understanding of because we're that wise and wonderful. And in fact, we're foolish. He goes on, he says that, that this generation is filled with all manner of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity. I want to zero in on a few of these. He says they are gossips or slanderers. And um, one translation puts slander as backstabbers. Now, I, as we walk through these, I, I want you to process something else. We have over the years, as we've sent out missions teams, one of the things that we've taught is a biblical spiritual principle called ministering in the opposite spirit. Ministering in the opposite spirit goes like this. It's, it's rooted in part in a passage in Proverbs that says, a soft answer turns away what? Anybody? Wrath or anger. 
In other words, someone's angry and they're wired up at you. The, the real thing you should do is wire up and get angry right back at them. No, that's where you end up with a road rage and, and people getting shot and all sorts of stupid things happening. So the scripture says a soft answer turns away wrath. So in other words, we go the opposite of what's going. If someone is being wrathful and angry, then we get quiet and thoughtful on it. And so as the elders and staff and some of us were discussing, how do we deal with this current generation? How do we deal with so much of that that's even seeped into the church? We don't want to be engaged in criticizing other churches. That's an intramural warfare that's just foolish. But how do we, how do we address this? How do we change those things? <clears throat> and so we said, let's look at what is actually happening in this generation. And let's seek a time of prayer that would be an opposite of that. Not attacking that, but lifting up those traits that, that, that God would have in this time period. And so there are three of these that I want to draw your attention to, that as we have prayer over the next couple of weeks' time, we want to be very specific about. And this first one is gossipers or slanders. And so backstabbers. So what we find are, are, are words. And so the opposite of the words there that are thoughtless and destructive is that we purposely would choose to have thoughtful, kind, and constructive words. That we examine our words. Now, this means also what we have on Facebook. Social media has taken gossip and slandering to an all-time high. It is so easy because we can kick it out to a thousand people at a touch of a button. And so the first thing is we look at what this generation loves to do is the gossip and the slandering, is that we choose to be thoughtful, kind and constructive in our words. The other part that you see in this is it says that they're insolent, haughty, boastful. And the word haughty means proud. So they're insolent, proud, boastful. There's an arrogance. So if that's what is steeped within the culture, this boastful arrogance, then those who would seek a different way should operate in humility. That doesn't mean that we suddenly just become that. It means that we, we begin to pray and say, God, can you address us in humility? We already know that we're more humble than anybody else, but can you make us more humble? And we begin to be broken down in the presence of the presence of God. Some of those moments can be even something like today. You know, there's no video, there's no screens. We could be having people running with their, like chickens with their head cut off. And, and the reality is it doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's an annoyance. It can be a minor distraction. But you know what I found when I was in worship over there? And I'm not saying this should be our mode going forward. I recognize why, why it's important. I found myself less focused on screens and more uh, listening, even if I didn't know the words and hear, hearing them sing it, of engaging in worship on a different level. There's things we can find in that. So this haughty, proud issue, and then it goes on and says they're inventors of evil. In the middle of this, they throw in a weird line. It says disobedient to parents. That's kind of weird in the middle of all this murder, mayhem, and everything else, but it's talking about disobedience to parents. Basically, they engage their parents until they're of no use to them anymore, and then they toss them aside and their counsel. And since disobedience to parents is one of the Ten Commandments listed, there's something intense about not respecting um, those who are older or those who have brought us to a certain point. And then this other section says, foolish, faithless, heart, heartless, and ruthless. Another translation says, they refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have uh, no mercy. Um, this term ruthless, so let's back up a minute. If we were to sit here and say that 
that in contrast to gossip and slanders, that we want to have instead of thoughtful, destructive words, thoughtful, kind, and constructive words. And instead of arrogance, that we want to pray for humility and seek that. That instead of ruthlessness, that is this last one, we want to have mercy or compassion. Now, ruthless is kind of a weird word. Think about it for a minute. Have any of you been ruthful more? I mean, where does the word ruthless come from? It's, it's ruthless, so we have less Ruth in us. All I can think of is a baby Ruth candy bar, and I don't understand <laughs> what that phrase means to be ruthless. I am, I am without peanuts and nougat, okay? <laughs> Wrapped in caramel, I, I'm somehow ruthless. Um, the term ruthless is rooted in around 12th century English. And I know right here, I just lost the majority of you the moment I mentioned a century. But there was a term evidently in English called Ruth, R-E-U-T-H, I think it is. And with that term, it meant someone who literally identified with, with someone in their pain, someone who was charitable, someone who was um, close in identifying with people. And so... Naturally, then, the term ruthless means someone who does not identify. And there's a whole slew of, of phrases of what ruthless in the phrase means. It, it, it means heartless, cold, cruel, vicious, without mercy, um, brutal, uh, inhuman. I mean, it, it, the list goes on for like 20 words of what the term ruthless is. And if anything sums up this generational viewpoint, it is that. We have become a ruthless people, without mercy, without compassion. And yet the scripture tells us in Hosea 6 that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. He desires mercy. And if you look in the scripture, the term mercy means the ability to get right inside the other person's skin until we can see things with his eyes, think things with his or her mind, feel things with his or her feelings. It comes from a deliberate identification with another person. It's rooted in sympathy, which is derived from two Greek words, sin, which means together with passion, which means to experience or to suffer. So in other words, sympathy means experiencing things together with the other person. If we truly had sympathy, if we truly had mercy, if we were ruthful people, there would be no racism. There'd be no class division. There'd be none of the violence of speech or of action that we see today. It just wouldn't be happening. Because we'd be instead thinking, how does this post affect this person and their life? How do my words or my actions impact someone? In leadership, we should think of this all the time, and we should avoid those things that are rooted, as the scripture says, in vain ambition that can crush and destroy other people. But all of us, whether we're in a position of leadership or not, all of us have the responsibility. Do we operate in the veins of this generation? Or is there something more? Well, Scripture tells us some things in this. Galatians chapter 5. It tells us to walk by the Spirit. And it says in verse 17, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. And someone's saying, well, what are you talking about? And so the writer says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord. Anyone who causes discord. Jealousy, fits of rage, 
selfish ambition. This phrase pops up again and again. Ambition isn't wrong, but selfish ambition. Reaching for those things at the cost of another person or an entity without concern or care for the fallout. Dissensions, factions, political or otherwise. If your first loyalty is to a faction that you belong to and not to Christ, then you are part of this generation. Envy, drunkenness, talks about all sorts of stuff. And he says, I warn you, this is not the ways of the kingdom of God. But then he doesn't leave us hanging to say, okay, so we don't do the things that naturally flow out of us, that we naturally want to do, and that our environment tells us is normal and, and feels even good sometimes acting out. What else do we do? And he says, the fruit of the Spirit, the kingdom of God is different. It's love. It's joy. It's peace. Forbearance. Forbearance is not, is not a, a, an extinct water park of forebears, okay? It, it's, it's, it's talking about bearing with one another's annoying tendencies. Just quickly as a raise of hands, do any of you have anybody in your life, past, present, or, or current, that, 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 that annoys you on one level or another? If you didn't raise your hand, you are lying. You are lying. We all encounter, and you know what? You are the person that someone else was thinking of. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, uh. Sitting right next to me. <laughs> Holding his hand, you know? <laughs> the passage forbearance means that we bear with one another. It doesn't mean tolerating bad behavior. But it means that we don't trash someone out, that we give patience. And it goes on to add to this kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. I can be very gentle, but then there's times I really want to ramp up and I have to come back to this passage and say, no, there's to be gentleness. I can be intense. There's nothing wrong with that in the rightly applied format. But if that goes to the point of vain ambition or hurting somebody else, that's wrong. And you back that off. I understand those natural princely tendencies, but I refuse to engage in those. I self-correct and self-govern. Gentleness, self-control. It says this is the way we're supposed to live, so let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Now quickly, I'm going to throw a slew of scriptures at you real fast, okay? But all with the same theme. Jesus says something. He says, do not love the world in 1 John or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. That's where you're rooted at. That's your foundation if it's the world. 1 John, he goes on in the, in the message version, and it's, I like it, it makes it a little more plain. He says, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the Father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear, appear important. Those are all worldly methods of this generation. Has nothing to do with the Father. You know what I find happening is this. We listen to this stuff until we end up in a situation where we're being taken advantage of or someone's reacting towards us in a worldly fashion. I've seen this. I've seen this with church leaders. I find this disturbing because they act in the ways of the Spirit until someone defrauds them or until someone offends them or someone treats them badly. And then you know what we think in our heads are? Okay, wait a minute. They just did wrong. Therefore, I get to do whatever I'm going to do now to them because they were wrong. 
Not only that, but if I continue to operate in a way that is not of this generation, I am going to be taken advantage of. I will be defrauded. I will be persecuted. I will be pressed upon. I'll be attacked. Yes. All right, why not? I saw an article the other day. It was interesting. It was a Christian writing as to why so many evangelicals are supporting um, the current president. And he said in part, and he's a Christian, he said in part it's because so many of them have been belittled by elites and attacked and persecuted. And so they see this as a way of striking back. And he said they have been belittled. They have been all that. And I was struck by the fact that that is true. But let me ask you, according to the scripture, does that mean that we're supposed to strike back? Does that mean that if a person that we um, feel stands for certain values or things that we believe in or at least will fight for us, if they're still wrong in something else, should we not challenge that as quickly as we would those that we're in opposition to? Isn't there a baseline of scripture, a baseline of an understanding of how we operate as believers that, that should affect not just how we hold ourselves, but how we hold others accountable. But we don't. We justify it because we've been hurt or offended. They have used methodologies that are not Christ-like. Therefore, we will use methodologies that are not Christ-like in response, meeting fire with fire. That is not what you find in Scripture. That is not the way Jesus nor the disciples lived out his life. I'm not saying that we'd be foolish or stupid or lay down. There's something that's far more complex to this conversation than we're going to unwind here to get today. And if you find this to be a political statement, you are dead wrong. I'm talking about our souls and our spirits and how we're supposed to operate in life. Support what you want, but also hold it to accountability when it's wrong. If someone is attacking you in a way that they shouldn't, you can challenge that, but don't use the same methodologies back at that person and use their behavior as justification for your actions. Don't love the world's ways. He says it just isolates you from God. The world and all it's wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. It talks about in John 15, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As you don't belong to the world and I've chosen you out of it, that's why the world hates you. John 17, he prays over the church. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they're not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is that not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them basically while they're in the world. We're engaged all the time with non-believers. We're engaged with this generation. Some of this generation live in our household. Some of this generation we're married to. That doesn't mean we become part of that generation. If anything else, we need to dive deeper into the presence of God. Romans chapter 12 says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Most of these scriptures you've read, a lot of these you know, a lot of them we understand. Why don't we do anything with them? I think for the most part, because it's dangerous. It can place us at disadvantages. Someone's being harsh and vicious to us. This generation says, you post something even more and you own that person. And you get cheers for that instead of sitting here and, and either holding your fire and saying nothing or responding with love and compassion in response back. 
We're so used to being entertained and with all the other things that draw our attention and hold our attention that just the quiet simplicity of resting in God's presence is something that's disturbing to us. You know what strikes me is Jesus offers the greatest sermon ever given by anybody in all of time. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And if you read it in chapter 5, check out how it begins. There's such a big crowd that he goes up into a mountain so you can have some degree of them being able to see him and all. And, and he sits down and then he delivers this, this speech, if you will. But what I'm struck by is he sits down and just says, you know, I mean, real zingers. I mean, powerful, exciting lines like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they'll inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek. And, and I was thinking in my mind as I heard this, I thought, I wonder if he's, if he's pacing out, Blessed are the meek. You know, blessed are the poor. You know, and he's, if he's doing some kind of a, and I'm sitting here and I read the scripture and it says he sat down. He's not offering anything. He's not trying to control or coerce or flash it across. He's just simply offering the truth. This generation doesn't care about the truth. But those who'd be followers of Christ, that's supposed to be the one thing that matters to us. All right, I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly. I just want to read to you a couple more passages of Scripture, okay? Is that all right? Okay, all right. I know it's Sunday morning, but don't want to presume anything. Where do we put our dependency? Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some leaders and some churches and some people, they're, they're focused on the newest, the best, the brightest, all those things. But is there a part of just trusting in God? Not that we can't do the newest and best and the brightest. I, I don't, I'm not speaking against that stuff any more than I'm speaking against leadership skills. But where's our trust lie? Where's our dependency lie? If it's your 401k, that dictates something right there. If you feel better and more secure when the market's up than when the market's down, that tells me right there you're trusting in horses and chariots. They just ride on Wall Street, that's all. <laughs> Or is your dependency upon God, which means you're not shaken whether it's up or down or wherever it's going. There's a really interesting passage that I kind of wanted to bring us back to here as we wrap this up. That was highlighted in prayer this past uh, Wednesday in a conversation I had before that. Exodus chapter 33. The people of Israel have come out of Egypt and they're at Mount Sinai, but they've screwed up. And uh, God's going to strike him down. Moses intercedes. Um, but, but the Lord says to Moses, look, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. Go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give to your descendants. He says, I'll send an angel before you, and they're going to drive out all the bad guys. Go up with the land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm not going to go with you. Because you're stiff-necked people. This generation's a mess. And I might destroy you on the way. Well, that's a real winner. Okay, here's the land of blessing and promise. Just go, all right? Go, I'm not going to go with you. You go. If we keep walking this way, you guys are so ornery that I'm going to have to correct you and you, you, could get, you could die along the way. Now, how many of us given the option to walk into the land of promise, the land of, of milk and honey, and he's going to send an angel ahead to do all the fighting? 
So it's not like you're on your own. Good luck. He's going he's gonna to secure it for you. It's going to be the land of blessing. You're going to receive everything that you ever wanted, all the good things that you'd like. The only thing is God will not be with you. The prince would seize that in a heartbeat. Absolutely. I'll have my kingdom. I'll have my place. We have plenty. We will be blessed in this time period of our lives. The enemies will be vacated. Absolutely. Deal or no deal? Deal. Moses, though, is in the same type of leadership as um, David and Gideon and Deborah and the disciples and a lot of others. And he makes this statement in 33 verse 15. He says to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. If your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. In other words, if it comes to a choice between blessing without you or being in the desert with you, we choose the desert. This generation will always take the blessing. This generation will always take the things. This is why we come to church a lot of times. We just want to be blessed. We just want to get something that we can use for our lives. But the idea of seeking God, the idea of experiencing Him, is a secondary issue to our own agenda. But the people who reject this generational perspective, this worldview, not people, worldview, they come into gatherings like this to experience God. They want to pursue him. They want the sense of his presence. They recognize there's life way beyond this life. And this is what they're seeking. I would love to be in the princely element with thousands and thousands of people and all the things that come with that stuff. But I'll be honest, I, I, I want to lead this group. I want to be a part of this group. And so the question I have this morning for you is, um, which would you rather be a part of? Do you come to experience church or to experience God? Do you come to be blessed or to bless others? Are your words thoughtless and destructive or thoughtful, kind and constructive? Or do we move with arrogance of this generation or with the humility? Are we ruthless people without mercy and compassion? Or are we ruthful? And do we choose to be ruthful? Final passage I play for you this morning would be this. It's a weird passage in First Chronicles. Children of Israel are gathering around David, and some of the leaders are gathering now as he's about to take uh, command of the of the of the of the nation. Finally, he's been on the outsides, but now it's coming inside. Different people are coming with different things. In First Chronicles twelve thirty two, really interesting passage. It says, from different tribes, different people are coming and offering what they have. But from Issachar, the tribe of Issachar, it says this: from Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Men who understood the times. Do you understand the times? Do you see where this generation is going? Regardless of age, it's a worldview. 
Do you see that? And you choose to reject that, or are you so soaked in it that you don't even know the difference any longer? The men of Issachar knew the times. They didn't respond with anger, violence, or anything else necessarily in that. There's a different way to respond to that. For us and for this church, it's going to be not because we're anything great or anything special, but because we don't know any other way to approach it. It's going to be with prayer in this season of time. Hopefully at all time, but particularly right now, as we finished a season of time of, of a half a century and we're looking at where we go next and we could so quickly try to do better and greater than what we've done there, maybe God wants us to do lesser and simpler. And so as we try to experience God, we don't choose the ways of the prince, we choose the ways of the pauper. As we try to experience God, we're not going to choose the methodologies of this generation. We're going to try to actively pursue the methodologies that we see within Scripture. And so we're going to guard our words. We're going to walk with humility the best that we can. I think above all, we want to be ruthful. We want to have sympathy, empathy, compassion, and mercy. Why? Because at the end of the day, we are the product of mercy. We stand only by His grace. And the only way I can really hurt somebody else is if I forget that. But if I remember that, how can I hurt someone else? How can I be less than compassionate and caring when our God has been so incredibly gracious and kind to me? And so, Lord, we stand in this moment of time as a church and we say that we'd love to have blessing. We'd love to have all the richness of the land. Uh, and if that's your will for us, <laughs> by all means, we will accept that. But we still say we would rather be in the desert in your presence than a place of blessing without. There'll be those around the front here uh, to pray with you if you have a need and you want uh, someone to pray with you. We have two more gathering points in these uh, 40 days of prayer. They're listed on a Wednesday night. They'll be listed on your bulletin if you want to join us in that time. If you can't, then at least follow along with the devotional and, uh, and be in prayer. And the key themes we're looking at are repentance in this first portion. Um, but then we're going to be looking at humility and then and how we choose our words. And then that whole idea of mercy and compassion. So those are kind of our prayer points and themes over this season of time. Father, I thank you um, for your grace. I thank you, Lord, that, that while technology is a wonderful help to us, that we're not completely dependent upon it. But we are utterly dependent upon your presence. If your Holy Spirit is not present with us, Lord, then none of this has meaning. So I pray, Father, that the, that, that the words that have been said here today, as they align with your truth, where they align with your truth, that they would burrow deep into our hearts and minds and would challenge us as we engage this week and we begin to check our own attitude our own approach how we are thinking how we are acting and see if they align with you or not guide us in this I pray in Jesus name Amen <laughs>